turn again for our second reading to the book that we've been looking at over recent weeks. That's the prophecy of Joel. And uh, chapter 2, which you'll find again on page 1052 in the Church Bible. If you're not using that, it comes after the prophecies of Daniel and Hosea. And then before uh, Amos and Obadiah. Joel chapter 2 and... uh, reading at verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord, your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, Sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord, let them weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them? Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. And the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. May he bless again the reading of his word, and uh, we'll again gather our thoughts as we did in the morning around verse 15, where the prophet is to tell the priests who are the ministers of the word in the Old Testament, he's telling them to blow the trumpet in Zion, to consecrate a fast, and call a sacred assembly. Now we're essentially again resuming from where we left off in the morning and it's easier for us to do that because pretty much everyone is able in a sense to be present because of the services going out online. And we saw in the morning how Joel is telling the priests, as I said, the ministers of God, to blow the trumpet a second time. Now, the first blowing of the trumpet, you'll remember at the beginning of chapter 2, was to sound an alarm in the congregation. That was its function. The second blow of the trumpet is for gathering the congregation together, for calling a sacred assembly, as he puts it in verse 15, gathering the people sanctifying the congregation and assembling the elders, and so on. And as we saw, too, the purpose of this special gathering was for a solemn fast. Fasting is always united in the Bible with uh, prayer and repentance, but this call is for a solemn fast. And the reason for the fast, not surprisingly, has to do with the need for repentance. Uh, The people have not been taking to heart that the locusts were sent from God to ravage their land as a a judgment on their uh, materialism and on their increasing ungodliness. So Joel has been sent 
to proclaim to them that the locusts are from God, that they are a chastisement, and therefore they need to turn. And uh, when the congregation assemble, when they gather together in Jerusalem, which must have been a vast congregation, as uh, numbering hundreds of thousands, as we'll see later, the real message addressed to them in verse 12 is this message of repentance, which comes directly from the mouth of God himself. In verse 12, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And then Joel himself elaborates on that. And he tells the priests to elaborate on it when they're preaching on it. So tear your heart, not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and relents from doing harm. Now, in the morning, we focus particularly on the fact that uh, we cannot really repent as a people. We can't repent as individuals or as a people or as a nation until we know our sins. We can't turn from our sins until we really know what these sins are. And it's always tempting to speak about sin as a kind of generality, never quite pinning it down, never quite understanding what it is. And we saw how at another period in Old Testament history, Isaiah was told to take the trumpet in his mouth, the same language, to take the trumpet, to raise up his voice like a trumpet, and to declare to the house of Jacob their sins. And we saw how Isaiah itemized those sins. And in the morning with God's grace, I hope we were able to see the sins that characterize the church and the state or the nation and many Western nations in our own time. It's necessary to see these to repent. And uh, if, if you know yourself that you personally need to repent and you need to be saved, if you know that hell hangs over you, and you need to enter heaven, then you need to ask God what it is that needs to change in your own life. How can you turn? You, you can say to God honestly and wholeheartedly, what does turning to you mean? What do I need to turn from? What is my sin? We saw something of that in the morning. And that's why I really closed in the morning with that text from Lamentation. After Jerusalem was destroyed, when Jeremiah said to the people, let us search our hearts, examine our ways, and return to the Lord. So that's the first thing, knowing your sins. The second part of the message here given to the great congregation is a, a message that gives the people hope that God will accept them and receive them. Uh, you'll notice how... Um, Verse 13 goes, So rend your heart or tear your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. You, re you return, you do your part, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. You'll notice here that the the call to repentance and to turn from what you are is based on the character of God himself. Not, not here the character of the God who will judge these sins, which he certainly will, but based on the character of God who will recognize your repentance and who will receive you and who will deal kindly and graciously with you. The, the four characteristics of God here are that he is gracious and merciful, that he is slow to anger and of great kindness. Just to rearrange these a little bit, he is not easily provoked or he is long-suffering, not easily provoked. He has a forgiving spirit, or it would be more accurate to say that God is a forgiving spirit. And he also shows great and unexpected kindness to those who turn to himself. Now, I didn't intend these sermons to, to run parallel with the, 
the sermons on the prodigal son, which we've seen recently too. Uh, I, I didn't intend it um, to be done that way, but there's no doubt that these aspects of God come to the fore in the father who receives the prodigal son. He was long-suffering towards his rebellious son, even to the point of allowing his own waywardness and his reckless decision to leave the home. Uh, The father allowed that to be. And the father in that parable obviously retained a forgiving spirit all these years when he couldn't actually show forgiveness to the son. Uh, That's something that we always need to remember ourselves. Sometimes we can't actually practically forgive anybody because the circumstances aren't right. The person isn't repenting. But we need to have a forgiving spirit towards the person so that when the person repents, we are ready to receive him. Now, the father had that spirit, a spirit in which he was always willing to receive his repentant son. And you'll notice again that just as God shows great kindness to those who turn towards him, So the father did in that parable. When the prodigal son came home, the father gave him the ring. He gave him the shoes on his feet. And he gave him the best robe in the house. And he killed the fatted calf in celebration. In other words, just as Christ received sinners and ate with them, so God always receives the repentant. And it's important to emphasize that because the devil will see to it that the impression you have of the character of God in your head will be a caricature. It will not be the real character of God himself. Your impression perhaps is something like the impression the man had in the other parable, where he said of God that you are an austere man, gathering where you never scattered and reaping where you never even sowed in the first place. You're always asking us to make bricks without straw, You're always asking us the impossible. You're asking us to believe the unbelievable. And uh, and so on and so on. You are harsh. Uh, You are a judge, unfeeling and cold. And the reality is what we have brought before us here in the passage. That the character of God is different from that. Righteous and holy he may be, but full of loving kindness and grace he is too. And irrespective of your sin, irrespective of your sin, reach out your hand to God and God will reach out his hand towards yourself. Be in no doubt about that. If you die unreconciled to God, it's because you chose not to be reconciled to him. Make no mistake. And if you wonder how that's so, it will be made plain to you on that great day that your failure to be reconciled lay in your own unbelieving heart. Now, you see this willingness of God to receive sinners all over the place in the Bible, and there's a sense in which it's almost pointless for me to take examples from Scripture because you're bound to know them. I mentioned last week, or was it, yes, it was last week, in dealing with the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son, I made a reference to Jonah and his preaching to Nineveh how he was a very reluctant preacher in Nineveh because he didn't particularly believe that the Ninevites were worth saving. They were a cruel, harsh people, almost like the Nazis in the pleasure that they took in torturing and inflicting pain on people. And Jonah just didn't think it was right that the gospel would go to them. And when, of course, he preached, the people of Nineveh repented and I highlighted the fact, as the scripture highlights it, that Jonah was angry that the people repented. And he was angry that God accepted the repentance. And he said to him, was this not what I said to you when you first called me to preach to them, when I was still in my home country? Did I not say that this would happen because, he says, you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness. Pretty much exactly the same words as we have here in Joel. You are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. 
and that's the reason Jonah was angry. Uh, not, of course. I mean, he was quite happy to receive these qualities of God in his own life. But he just didn't think they should be applied to somebody else's life. In other words, um, God wasn't just kind to the Ninevites, but he was kind to Jonah too. He had ample reason to cast Jonah off, and he's had ample reason to cast me off. And you as a Christian can probably say tonight that he's had ample reason to cast you off too. You didn't stop tasting the grace and mercy of God when you became a Christian. In fact, if anything, you've tasted more of it since you became a Christian. But it's not Jonah I'm focusing on tonight. It is the Ninevites, the Ninevites, sorry, themselves. What an astonishing thing that God should visit that great capital city that was flowing with blood, even the blood of some of God's people. And he actually has mercy on these people. When we think about it, it's difficult to understand. <clears throat> you know, sometimes the devil will tempt us into thinking that there's something wrong with the justice of God. He seldom tempts us to think that there's something wrong with the grace of God. <laughs> but, you know, in many ways, it's harder to understand his grace than it is to understand his judgment. Much harder. Uh, uh, I was thinking just a while ago, and I don't rem remember if I actually said it uh, in the pulpit here. I don't think so, but I was speaking to someone and recalling the incident where uh, Corrie ten Boom was uh, speaking. She was the Dutch girl who had been in a concentration camp with her sister. And uh, her sister had died in the concentration camp. Corrie ten Boom herself lived through it, and she spoke to people, to hundreds, thousands of people for years afterwards about how God was at work in the concentration camp. You don't think of the grace of God in the concentration camp. She would have told you that it was very much there. But she recalled one night um, after she had spoken and she was shaking hands with people, this man coming along and saying to her, isn't the grace of God wonderful? Um, and she looked at his face and recognized him as a guard in the camp who had been particularly cruel, physically cruel to her sister. And uh, she spoke about how her hand froze uh, forgive me if I did mention this very recently, but her hand froze. She, she couldn't raise her hand to shake his hand. Um, I'm sure she had a problem for a while with the grace of God. A problem with it. A problem with God's ability to receive sinners. She prayed quickly and raised her hand and shook his hand. His grace is far more difficult to understand than his justice. Far more difficult, but we seldom think of things like that. Uh, even King Ahab, although we're told that he had sold himself as a king of Israel to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, so, so much so that he had plunged the nation into total apostasy. When Elijah reappeared before him, Ahab said to him, have you found me, my enemy? And Elijah said, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, but I will bring calamity on you. I will cut off from you every male in Israel, from your family, both bond and free, and so on. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord has spoken, saying that the dogs will eat Jezebel, by the wall of Jezreel. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. But when Ahab heard these words, now this is an astonishing thing. I mean, it's just a, in a life of serial badness and serial sin and wickedness, we read amazingly that when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes put sackcloth on his body, fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of God came to Elijah and said, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done so, I will not bring the calamity in his days, but in the days of his son. God even responded to that. He, he responded to that degree of humility. Um, 
in Ahab, the king of Israel. That shows us how, how near, can we say, just as an expression, how near to God's heart forgiveness is, that it's so natural to him, that it's such a wonderful quality in his being. Now, um, <clears throat> this willingness of God to receive sinners is something that the, that the Bible highlights all the time. Um, it highlights it in the sense that it hangs it before us as an inducement to turn to God. It's an inducement to turn to God. For example, I'll just take a couple of examples. In a well-known text, <clears throat> Seek the Lord while he may be found. This is Isaiah 55. Call upon him while he is near. Now, he can be found tonight, and he's near tonight. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Now, notice, and he will have mercy on him. Let him return to God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are you ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Absolutely so. And that includes the forgiveness and the warmth with which God receives us. We might grudgingly receive someone who does us wrong, but not God. Not God. Uh, and even better example is if you can just turn a couple of pages back in your Bible to the prophecy of Hosea, which is addressed to the northern kingdom of Israel. Joel is addressed to the southern kingdom of Judah. But Hosea, in chapter, um, <clears throat> chapter 6, God has afflicted the nation, first like a moth nibbling away at their resources, then like a young lion he has really torn into them, but that chastisement works because they say in, ver in verse 1, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And in verse 3, it goes further. Let us know. Let us know it for ourselves. Let us pursue the knowledge of God. Let's discover him because his going forth in mercy is established like the morning and he will come to us. How? Like the rain refreshing the ground, like the latter and the former rain on the earth. Or just go forward to chapter 14 of the same book. Hosea 14 at verse 4. When the people are resolving to come back to God, God says in verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, charges nothing from us. For my anger has turned away from him, and I will be like the dew to Israel. And he will grow beautiful like the lily. He will lengthen his roots in God himself like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. He'll make us so fruitful. And his beauty shall be like an olive tree. And his fragrance, our fragrance as Christians, will be like Lebanon. I mean, to walk through Lebanon was like walking through a, a perfume store. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. And their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So every time God calls us to repentance, he emphasizes that he'll take us. If you come back to our text in Joel 2, just go forward a couple of pages. Um, although he says in verse 13, rend your heart, not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and of great kindness and relents from doing good, there then, then seems to be a kind of a note of uncertainty. Who knows if he will turn, if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. What does that mean? I mean, what, why that question, who knows if he will turn and relent? Um, now, there's perhaps a couple of ways of explaining that, but I'm only going to give the one that I think to be true. The reason it's put like this, who knows, is because this is the language of a repented person at, at the point of his repentance. <clears throat> In other words, it's not a kind of theological statement saying, well, who knows? The fact is that God will turn if you turn. Return to me and I'll return to you. But it's put in this way because when you're at a rock bottom of some kind or another, or when God has just brought you low in his providence and in his handling of you, he's brought you to this position. When you begin to recognize your need to come to God, this is how you feel. You don't have an absolutely firm and sure persuasion in that sense that, that he will receive you because you're so consumed with a sense of your own unworthiness and your defilement. It's, um, I mean, afterwards, you'll see so clearly that God could do nothing but receive you. But at the time, you're a beggar. And, and beggars don't really claim things in that kind of way but just because they're beggars. You're not conscious of your rights. You're conscious of your destitution. And that God is there as a, as a benefactor, someone who just gives to you in your unworthiness. And, and no one comes in their emptiness to God standing on the ground of rights. That's why, again, to go back to the prodigal son, when he resolved in the far country, envying the swine, when he resolved to go back home and to go to his father, he said, I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against you and in the sight of heaven and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, as we saw last week, the fact was that the father would have him on no other footing. He doesn't receive sinners as, as slaves. He receives them as sons. But, but the son doesn't feel like that. He doesn't feel like that. He, he just wants to be reconciled to the father and he'll take the lowest position imaginable. And, and that's the language that God's putting into our lips here. I mean, who knows if God will repent, relent, sorry, and if God will return and come back and receive me. It, it's so true of all of us, really, irrespective of whether we're Christians or not. You can be a Christian and sometimes feel that you've so sinned against the light and you've so sinned against God's kindness and grace and goodness that, that even if you ask for forgiveness, who knows? Because all you can see is your sin. And as a non-Christian, certainly, you can be brought to that place where you feel you're just not worthy ever to be called a son. But you'll notice even in this chapter itself, notice how the conviction of God's acceptance strengthens. Verse 18, that's Joel 2, verse 18. Then, once we've gathered and confessed, the Lord will be zealous for his land and he will pity his people. And the Lord will answer and say, I will send you grain, new wine and oil. I'll restore your economy. I'll restore your country. And you will be satisfied by them. And I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Or verse 25, which will come to later, not tonight, but on another occasion, a wonderful verse. I will restore to you the ears that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, that great army, my great army, which I sent among you. I'll restore to you these years and you'll eat in plenty and be satisfied and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never 
be put to shame. So this call to repentance involves knowing our sin and being persuaded of God's mercy. That's reflected in our catechism. Some of, some of you here will have learned the shorter catechism produced by the Westminster Assembly. Question 87, what is repentance unto life? What, what is real repentance? The repentance that makes you live before God, what is it? Well, it's a saving grace. It's a gift given by God, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, that's what we had in the morning, and an apprehension or an awareness of the mercy of God in Christ, turns from his sin. You notice how clearly that kind of thing is brought before us in the Scripture. Seeing myself and seeing God in Christ receiving me. There's more to it than that. As well as knowing these things, we actually have to turn. We actually have to change. Change is what matters, not thinking about change, not knowing that you need to change, it's change that matters. In other words, whatever's wrong in your life, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you must put it right. You must confess it before God and put it right. Practical things. We saw in the morning how John the Baptist impressed on the people that it was practical things they needed to put right in their lives. As Paul says, let him who stole steal no more. Put away lying from your mouth. Lying is really rampant now. I mean, um, people lie easily. Let no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth. You don't need to say much about that either. Uh, the air is blue and red with guilt too. Put away from yourselves bitterness, anger, clamor, evil speaking, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting or crude jesting, sexual innuendo, that kind of thing. Put these things away, Paul says, or to put it another way, you turn from them. That's what repentance is. Remember, the word is turn. Turn from unbelief and sin and embrace faith and obedience. As the Catechism says, we turn from sin to God with a full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Notice how gentle and pastoral the Catechism is there, by the way. Uh, it, it acknowledges that sometimes our, our new obedience falls short. But for it to be real, there's got to be a full purpose of and an endeavor after new obedience. It's like saying, Lord, by your grace, I turn away and I turn to you and this new life that you call me to live. Uh, when I fall short, help me, grant me pardon and give me renewed strength. So repentance is knowing what I am, knowing that God will take me when I change and turning in faith and obedience to God. But there's more than that too. We've got to make sure that that turning is sincere. Look again at Joel 2 and verse 12. These are directly God's words. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Turn to me with all your heart. We needn't get bogged down in that. We all know what all your heart means. It's, it's just as plain as an expression like half-hearted. If I was to say to you, look, you're doing that in a very half-hearted way, you know straight away what I mean. In the same way we understand what wholeheartedness means. It means that, that you're putting your whole heart into what you're doing. You're not holding back. It's the difference between doing something externally on the one hand and doing it internally and externally on the other. 
That's why God says, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. He says, I don't want you to tear your clothes as people do at a time of national fasting. I think that tearing the clothes, I mean, there's a, there are varying views on the symbolism involved there. But I think myself, it is a way of expressing that there's a lack of beauty in you. You're willing to, to tear your clothes away. And there's also an exposing of yourself before God in the sense that, that clothes hide you. Um, you've got nothing to boast in, nothing to glory. You tear your finest clothing and all things are naked and exposed before God. But God says, don't tear your clothes. He says, tear your hearts. That's what I want torn. And as a demonstration of that, let it be accompanied with tears, with weeping and mourning, and indeed with fasting. That indicates a, a broken heart, a sincerity of purpose. And the broken heart is the sacrifice that always pleases God. As, uh, as uh, Psalm 51 says, when David is repenting after his terrible series of sins, you don't desire sacrifice, he says, or else I would give it to you. Now, we have to understand these words in context because God did actually desire a sacrifice. But what David is saying is that's not alone what you desire. If it was, it would be easy to be reconciled. I would just go through the motions. But you don't desire sacrifice or else I will give it to you. Nor wilt thou with burnt offering at all delighted be. In other words, the action of offering, it's not enough. I know that because a broken spirit is to God a pleasing sacrifice, a broken and a contrite heart, Lord, thou wilt not despise. And, uh, and when that happens, when, when he has a broken heart like that, then the righteous offerings will please you. The burnt offerings, the offerings of calves or goats or whatever, they will please you then because they arise from and are accompanied by a broken heart. Without, without a heart, what is a sacrifice? Nothing. Nothing. Now, you might say, well, where does this brokenness come from? I mean, you, you spoke in the morning about national sins. You spoke about sins in the church. You spoke about sins in Christians, sins in unbelievers. And maybe there's no brokenness or not enough brokenness. Where does this brokenness come from? Or to put it another way, how, how do I get or how do we get as a people to that place where we hate sin like that and actually want to turn from it? Well, the answer to that, I suppose, in one way is simply to say that you ask the God who has shown you your sin to give you that hatred of it. And... Uh, usually that will happen. That's God's process. I mean, normally God's process, and it certainly is with his own people, God's process is to open up a sinful, their sinful nature so that they'll hate it and cleave to himself. But he has a strange way of doing it. The way in which he primarily does it is by lifting up before your eyes the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in itself, you would say that that is a strange way to convict you of sin. Now, admittedly, there are other ways. But it's never without this. And this is the primary way. As he, as he lifts up the cross, um, you see your sin, and the Savior you see is restored to the center or to the crux cross restored to the crux of your life where he ought to have been anyway because I spoke in the morning about you drifting from God and God turning away from you but as as an American once preacher once put it it stuck in my mind if you're far from God guess who moved or at least we could say guess who moved first first but looking upon the cross will restore Christ to the center of your life I'll tell you how that works. First of all, as Christ crucified is lifted up before you in the scriptures or in the preaching of the word, 
you begin to understand the holiness of God again. You know, if you, <clears throat> it's difficult to explain how these things work in a way, but if you want to see the holiness of God, perhaps indeed you could walk around Mount Sinai. You could see the smoke and the lightning. <clears throat> you could look at the men of Beth Shemesh uh, being struck down dead because they looked into the ark. You could look at Uzzah being struck down because he handled the ark of God. You could see the plagues falling on Egypt and you see the holiness of God. And if we see it, we should be alarmed by it. But that is as nothing in comparison with the holiness of God that is seen on the cross. How holy is God? He is so holy that his wrath lies upon his own son. He is so holy that when he sees son, sin on his son's back, he must deal with it in his son. He is as holy as that. When you see the Son of God crucified, when you see the vast power, the entire arsenal of hell exhausted in their rage and fury against the Son of God, that's holiness. That's holiness. That tells you just how holy God is and how inflexible his standard of righteousness actually is. The blood of his own son tells you how holy he is. Something else, of course, comes plainly to view in the cross too. And that's his goodness and his mercy in this sense. In this sense, when, when you see your sin in the light of that cross, you recognize that you've sinned against light. All of you here have, whether you're professing Christians or not, you've had a lot of light since you were born into the world. Many of you, I don't know all of you that well, but I'm sure you have. Many of you have received a lot of light and a lot of love from the people of God too. You've received a lot of kindness. And how much love and kindness have you received from the Lord Jesus Christ? How much love and kindness since he first came into your heart as a Christian? And yet you've sinned and you've backslidden and you've fallen away from God. You've brought locusts upon yourself. You've brought disease and affliction. And you look at the cross and you say, how could I have done that? How could I have done that? How could I have so dealt with the one who so loved me as to pour out his soul unto death for my sake? Someone who actually went to, in a sense, and spiritually went to hell for my sake. Who, who could say that the pains of hell too cold on me I grief and trouble found for my sake, for your sake? Once you see your sins as that which crucified Christ, you'll hate them all right. You'll hate them all right. And maybe you need to see them again as the things that crucified Christ, the things that made him go to the cross in order to deliver you from them. Um, when I was thinking about this, I, I thought about the great Jewish conversion spoken of by Zechariah. <clears throat> In the second last prophecy of the Bible, and in, in chapter 12, he's, uh, there's a prophecy of the Jews turning to God. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem on that day the spirit of grace and supplication. So God's going to work in their hearts. And what happens? Well, listen to this. Isn't this beautiful? Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. I've no doubt that the first application of that text <clears throat> was fulfilled when 
on, on the great day of Pentecost, many of the Jewish people turned to embrace the Lord, but being no doubt its primary fulfillment is still yet to come. And on that day, uh, they will look on the Lord whom they pierced. Oh, we did too, we did too. But they will look on him whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as for an only son. Does that not bring before you the sense of um, he was our savior and he came to us and he came to deliver and to save us and we killed him and we crucified him. And for thousands of years, we rejected him and we resisted his name. And he was our brother. He was our Joseph who made salvation possible. And they'll mourn just like you would mourn for an only son or me too. There's nothing like a crucified Christ to renew your sense of God's holiness and your hatred for sin, for your own sin in the sight of God. A broken heart and a contrite heart. And um, it's interesting too that this this God-centeredness in repentance, this Christ-centeredness and God-centeredness is reflected in, your, in, in the prayers, too, of the people. I don't know if you noticed here, but when the congregation gathers, um, in verse 15, they're to blow the trumpet, call a sacred assembly. In verse 17, the teaching priests, they, they lead in these assemblies. I don't know if the assembly was strictly one or were there many, because you've got a huge number of people. Let the priests who minister to the Lord, let them weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, notice they're leading the congregation in prayer. And, and notice the prayer. Spare your people, O Lord. Don't give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. And why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? That's an unusual prayer because it doesn't highlight confession of sin. It's assumed, but it doesn't highlight it. The emphasis is completely different. It's as though each person is saying, spare us all. And don't give us over to reproach or to enslavement to foreign peoples and to hostile powers. And don't give people around us the reason to doubt your presence amongst us. A strange prayer. The only way in which it's really explicable is to understand it as coming from the lips of people who, who care nothing really in a sense for themselves in comparison to how they care about God and the witness that they've presented to God as a backslidden people. Don't give the world a reason to doubt that you've been with us. Bring us back so that we won't be a reproach on you anymore. That people will recognize that we are your people. God's glory is at the heart of their prayer. Listen to the words of Psalm 42. It is like a sword within my bones, David says. When my foes upbraid me, and when they say, where is your God? Why is that a sword in David's bones? Because he loves God. In other words, people are looking at David and saying, well, where's your God then? And David is saying, Lord, let them not say that. But in whatever way you deal with me, deal with me in such a way that people looking at me will recognize that I am yours and you are mine. That's all that matters to me. Even if it is with a heavy hand of chastisement, let them say, I am yours. He is mine. Whatever way, let that be true. His concern is for the glory of God. <clears throat> By the way, notice that that comes through too in uh, verse 14. It comes through in a way we don't expect. Um, this is speaking about God receiving you. and Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now, again, what's the significance of that? Why, when you have a ravaged people in the midst of near famine, total and utter famine, 
Why is the only thing worth mentioning a grain offering and a drink offering for God? Well, think about it for a minute. The worst thing that had happened to the land was the fact that worship had ceased. The offering that was normally offered before God could not be offered because of the judgment that God had sent on the land. You remember I quoted Calvin, was it last week or the week before, that God must have been very angry with his people to allow his own worship to be affected. But it seems in this state of repentance that all that matters to them is can the grain offering and the drink offering be offered? Is that not a good sign? Is that not a good sign? I mean, what matters most to you in this situation? Um, I don't want to speak lightly of this because people have suffered a lot, perhaps financially, in this situation. So I, I don't speak lightly about it. But is it your finances or is it the worship of God? Is it the economic state of the land generally, shops and businesses or recreations, or the worship of God? Well, if you have a repentant spirit, what, what will mean most to you is that the gatherings of God's people can be met and can be characterized by the things that ought to be in them, bread and wine and the singing of psalms. Will you not come back and restore even this to us? But again, the point is that what matters most is the glory of God when we are repentant. For your sake, restore me. Let me read the catechism again. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension or an awareness of God's mercy in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. It's all here. It's a wonderful document, the shorter catechism. Every question is so concise, but so full. Let me make briefly two points before I close in connection with this gathering of the congregation. I want us to notice, first of all, that it was a national gathering. Call a fast, verse 15, call a sacred assembly, gather the people. And uh, we're told on an earlier occasion that it's all the inhabitants of the land. It's not an ordinary assembly, this. It doesn't happen on a Sabbath day either because it's a fast. You know, I sometimes think that if churches were going to appoint a fast today, they would appoint them on a Sabbath day so that it wouldn't be too inconvenient and wouldn't be too much of a burden through the week. I know what we'll do. Let's make Sunday a fast day because everybody's more or less keeping it holy anyway. That's a church that really needs a fast day and not on a Sunday. But there are two categories of people here that you wouldn't expect. First of all, you've got halfway through verse 16, uh, gather the children and the nursing babes. Literally, little children and infants. Now, their presence was not required at the feasts. And usually when the word was expounded, as Nehemiah says, it was the men and the women and all who could hear with understanding who gathered for that word expounded. All who could hear with understanding. But here on this special occasion, and on one or two other special occasions too, the children the infants are to gather because all the women are to gather. Everybody, everybody is to gather before God for this. Even at the end of verse 16, the bridegroom who's in his chamber and the bride who's in her dressing room. Now that's astonishing. And of course, that's another proof, an incidental proof that this is not the Lord's day because they didn't get married on the Lord's day. That's another tendency, by the way, that is coming into so-called reformed churches in this country and other churches. That's for marriages to take place on the Lord's Day. Ministers performing this. As though the fact that worship is connected to the marriage makes it a, an okay thing to happen. As though the celebrations and festivities connected with that are, are somehow God-centered. Marriages do not belong with the Lord's Day. They are to be entirely separate for them. But you'll notice that 
On this occasion here, we're not, this isn't the Lord's day. This is a special appointed fast day. The bride and the groom are in their chamber. In other words, this day is so important that they need to rearrange their wedding date. Now, there's, there's many things that people will put before the things of God now. I, I remember a day when people put nothing before the things of God. There are many things that people will put before the things of God. But God is making clear to Joel, Joel is making clear to the priests that this is priority. And every social event gives way to the convocation of the people in Jerusalem. You know, it struck me preparing this sermon how difficult it is now to achieve this. Why? Because the church is so broken. I could call it in a congregation. The elders, the session could call it in a congregation. This is a national thing. Well, let's take the reformed denominations in the land. Still really small. But even if they could call it together, it would be something. You know, I don't think we would even agree on a day in case one denomination would say, oh, that's the day they chose. I think we should go for another day. We're confronted, sadly, with churches that have differences and decide that these differences are enough to be in division, seemingly perpetually. That's a shame. Not only does it weaken and discourage the Lord's people, it's a huge hindrance to the witness of Christ in this world. Christ specifically says that the oneness of the Lord's people is to communicate to the world in such a way that the world will believe that he sent them. What can we say? What can we say? Surely if two churches can agree on the worship and doctrine and government of the church, as was outlined for us so many years ago in all the Westminster documents, surely nothing should hinder us from being together. Nothing. Differences there may be. You know, a minister said to me recently that there are cultural differences that separate churches. Cultural differences? What has that got to do with the unity of God's church? Do you think Antioch had the same culture as Corinth? Certainly not. But that had nothing to do with their common worship, their common belief, and their common government. When we accept a situation where we're divided by cultural differences, what on earth becomes of us? If a church has seven services around a communion and another church has one, is there anything in our standards to say that therefore you must be apart? Dear me, if every difference will divide, we're finished. We're finished because we're all differing about something. No, no. No, but the sad fact is that we cannot really gather as one. And that in itself is a call to repent, to the church, church leaders to repent, because, you know, I'll tell you the stark reality. It's not the people who are the problem. It's the priests, the ministers. They're the problem. The people are wondering why on earth this is not so. And, uh, you see, you have it, I'm sorry, I've really gone on past my time, and I'll bring this to a close. But in Isaiah, for example, in chapter 11, he, he sees a day when this kind of envy and pride will be done away with. In Isaiah 11 and verse 13, when Christ is lifted up, he says, the envy of Ephraim, that's Israel, shall depart. The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off, and Ephraim will not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim any more. They, they weren't meant to. They shall fly down together upon the shoulder of the Philistines, and together they shall plunder the people of the east and lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. Now, what can be more clear than that? God um, taking down these barriers. And ourselves, I mean, the repentance lies with us taking down false, needless barriers and taking spoil from the world because the world recognizes that the power of God is there as it will be there. 
Or in Ezekiel, I mean, chapter 37. Um, let me just quickly bring this before you. Ezekiel 37. And uh, verse 15. This again is speaking about a day of quickening and revival. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, Son of man, take a stick for yourself. And write on the stick for Judah and the children of Israel, his companions. Take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of the people speak to you, saying, What do you mean by this? Say to them, Thus says the Lord, I will take the stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel as companions, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick, and they will be one stick in my hand. And in verse 24, David, my servant, who is Christ, shall be king over them. They shall have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. For as the Savior said, that they may be one, that the world may believe that you sent me. Uh, Jeremiah 2, uh, in chapter 50, he says, let us join ourselves in a perpetual covenant. Again, it's Israel and Judah. Let us join ourselves in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. The last thing is this. As well as being a national call, just quickly, it's an urgent call. We already saw the bride and the bridegroom are to leave their chamber. <clears throat> That's where the two alarm, the two trumpets are related. The first trumpet was the alarm. The second trumpet is the call to the congregation. If you're not alarmed, none of this will happen. None of it will happen. Um, but of course, if we are alarmed, it will happen. And we will begin to prepare ourselves earnestly for it. Because the day must come. Surely it will come when that verse that's quite often quoted in this house in prayer, not, not by me, but by another brother who seems to include it in all his prayers, this verse will come to pass. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. May the Lord bless our thoughts on his word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray for a spirit of repentance amongst ourselves. And uh, we pray that that day may come speedily when church may gather as one throughout the nation and uh, speak powerfully with one voice to a, a government that will recognize one church because God himself is clearly resident in their midst. And uh, we pray to give you no grief with our own wayward lives and uh, our own pride. And we pray that by your grace, unbelievers may see past our failure and may see a, a living and true God and uh, may see a present and a powerful Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Um, we'll conclude reading in Psalm 2. And uh, at verse 9. And this is a picture of the Messiah bringing the nations into subjection to himself. Thou shalt as with a weighty rod of iron break them all, and as a potter's shared, a piece of pottery, thou shalt them dash in pieces small. And then the call to the kings to be wise, the judges of the earth to be taught, serve God in fear, and see that you join trembling with your mirth, and kiss the Son. That's 
reconciliation and repentance, lest in his ire or anger you perish from the way. Why? Because if, if his wrath even just begins to burn, lest all that on him stay. The last three stanzas will hear some. receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.